How we doing? Hey, hey, wired for sound. <laughs> cool. I want to be respectful of the time tonight because there are other things going on after our chapel service tonight. So I want to move quickly into what we're going to be studying in the Word of God tonight. A couple things before we do that. Some of you have asked for that full list of what we talked about on Sunday morning, the fruit of the Spirit and the plastic fruit. We moved through that very quickly, you may have noticed. And so I made about 20 or so half-page copies of that for those who would be interested. They're in the back on the table in the back where those young men are standing. If you would want one of those, they would be back there. Uh, if you go back there and they're somehow... Those 20 copies are taken. You could come and I would be happy to provide more. I wasn't presumptuous enough to think there'd be more than 20 that would want that. So also, if you would be interested, another thing, if you'd be interested in having and getting our family's prayer card, they are also in the back there as well. These are brand spanking new. Spanking new. So they're also... I didn't even mean that one to be funny. <laughs> They're back there, and uh, you could feel free to have one of those if you'd like to have one, throw it up in your refrigerator. That would be great as well. Pray for us, would you? That would be fantastic. Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. Getting back into writing for the brand and asking the question that we've been asking all week and we've been studying all week. Simply that. Is the brand you're writing for? Is this form or this brand of discipleship that you're claiming, is it truly authentic? Is it the real deal? You think of authenticity like that. I remember the first time I went to Thailand as an intern during, in Thailand, every April 13th through 15th, it's Thailand's New Year, Buddhist New Year. And the country shuts down, and for those three days, it turns into a big water fight. Anyone who's out on the street, if they're not wearing a suit, they're fair game. It's awesome. <laughs> so I was going to be cool, and uh, I went to this store, a very cheap store, and I got a super soaker, because I was going to have a bigger water gun than anybody. I was taking that thing home, and little kids were seeing me walking with this big super soaker, walking through the neighborhood, and I was like, ooh, they were saying, ooh, look at the white guy. <laughs> and I was like, oh yeah, you're toast. And then it came down, so the day that came that we're going to have the big water fights, April 13th, there it is. I get the gun and fill it up, and we're having a big water fight at the missionary's house, and I start, and I go to squeeze, and as I'm, as I'm pumping and getting ready to squeeze the trigger, water just flying out everywhere. Every seam in that plastic water gun has water coming out of it, except for the end of the barrel. <laughs> and I was reminded right there that, yeah, the brand that you buy makes a difference. <laughs> While I'm in Thailand, I pay maybe too much attention to what's happening to American culture. I'm a runner, and I can't listen. I, I try to run three days a week, and I try to run a marathon a week. And so in those three days, trying to get 26 miles in in those three days, I have to do something to take away my mind from the actual running part of running, because I hate that part. <laughs> So I can't listen to music at all. M music does, doesn't take my mind away. Music help, just tells me, go, go home, quit, go home, quit, go home. So I listen to podcasts and I listen to preaching. The podcasts I listen to probably aren't all that great for my mind. 
and I listen to a lot of uh, political podcasts from the United States, people like Ben Shapiro and Michael Knowles. Yep. Occasionally, Steve Dace, if I really need to get mad. <laughs> so I've been paying attention, and it occurs to me that we're living, and I bet you'd agree with this too, this isn't coming as a surprise, we're living in a period of time where truth is being redefined. In fact, we could just throw out the simplest, one of the simplest examples out there of truth being redefined with the simple question, what is a woman? Yep. In her Senate confirmation hearings to become U.S. Supreme Court Justice, you might remember this. At the time, Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson was asked the question from a senator, can you provide, this is a quote, can you provide a definition for the word, what? Woman. Judge Brown-Jackson's responded, her answer was, quote, no, not in this context, I'm not a biologist. That answer, of course, set off a whole firestorm of all kinds of commentary from every political angle, including religious angles as well, of every kind of media platform out there. There was a response to all of this firestorm of activity because of Judge Brown Jackson's answer. And in USA Today, March 22, 2022, a columnist wrote this. Scientists, gender law scholars, and philosophers of biology said Jackson's response was commendable though perhaps misleading. It's useful, they say, that Jackson suggested science could help answer Blackburn's question, but they note that a competent biologist would not be able to offer a definitive answer either. Scientists agree there is no sufficient way to clearly define what makes someone a woman, and with billions of women on the planet, planet there's so much variation. And with word salad like that, truth continues to be redefined. That's an extreme example. But it causes me to wonder if we Christians, even Bible-believing Christians, are becoming guilty ourselves of redefining some truths of the Word of God. A Christian research group published the results of some of the research they did that I find very interesting. Here's some of it, just some. 65% of 18 to 42-year-olds in America have, in quotes, made a per personal commitment to Jesus that is still important to them. So these people claim to be followers, committed followers of Jesus Christ. However, the research also showed that only 23% of those people believe that sex outside of marriage was wrong. Only 13% said getting drunk is wrong. And the list of other disappointing beliefs that these people shared in this research goes on. So many people claim to be followers of Jesus, but they had clearly redefined what it meant to be a true follower of Jesus. Maybe even more surprising than, than the research was the fact that this was taken, this, this research is done was way back, way back in 2007. So do you suppose it's better today or worse? Worse, you'd be right. In Luke 9, we come to Luke 9. Luke 9 is all about discipleship. This Luke 9 for me is kind of like one chapter devoted to the internship of Jesus' disciples. Everything that happens in Luke 9, 
Even the feeding of the 5,000 is really for the purpose of the disciples, the followers of Christ. We come to Luke 9. In those first six verses, Jesus sends his disciples out, those that first group of apostles, he sends them out and says, go get them, boys, and come back and report. Verses 7 through 9, we get that perplexed question of Herod. Who is this Jesus? After that, we come to verses 10 through 17, the story of the feeding of the 5,000. If you had asked the crowd of 5,000, we know it wasn't just 5,000, right? You've heard enough sermons about this in your life that you know there were probably a lot more than 5,000 people there. 5,000 men is what the Bible says. So if people are bringing their wives and they're bringing their children, it's an easy, easy number to say that it may have been as many as 15,000, maybe 20,000. So in this large, large group of people, if you were asked them, you're taking a man on the street going up and putting the microphone in each one of these people's face. How many of these people in that crowd that was part of that feeding that day, if you'd asked them the question, are you a follower of Jesus, what do you suppose their answer would have been? Where were they? They weren't in Jerusalem. Where were they at? They had followed Jesus to where? To the countryside in the middle of nowhere in the area of Bethsaida, across the Jordan River on the east side of the river. If you go and you say, are you a follower of Jesus? You're in the middle of nowhere. I'm thinking in my mind, the, the, the answer might be something like, well, duh, I'm here. i am left my home. There's no around here to stay. Jesus knows that. That's why he told his disciples to go get bread because we got to feed them because there's not enough places in the town to feed us because this isn't our hometown. If you'd have asked, are you a follower? How many of Maybe not all. There's certainly a lot of Pharisees there. There are people who are there to mock. But there's a whole lot of people that say, well, well duh, I'm here. So it begs the question. I want us to answer it tonight looking at verses that are very familiar to us. What? Does it mean to be a follower, a true follower of Jesus? I sort of call this what we're going to study in verses 23, really through 26, the two costs of being a follower of Jesus. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? Before we answer that question, I want to ask a couple more questions that lead us into verse 23. What does it mean that Jesus is the Messiah? And then what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? Let's start reading in verse 18, shall we? Verse 18, chapter 9 of Luke. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. This is after the feeding of the 5,000. And he asked them, who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah. And others, the one one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And then look at verse 21. Think about this for a moment. What happened in the first six verses of chapter 9? Jesus has sent them out to do what? Preach the gospel. Now when Peter gives the answer, Jesus is going to say what? Go preach it again, right? Wrong. And he strictly charged them, commanded them to tell 
this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. When Peter announced that Jesus was the Messiah, what does it mean that Jesus is the Messiah? When Peter announced that Jesus was the Messiah, Jesus immediately explained to everyone present in that moment to be quiet about it because of the things and the experiences that lay ahead for him. What were those things? It wasn't a pretty picture. It was certainly unexpected, probably not even accepted at that moment by those very disciples. They were not prepared to hear what Jesus was about to say. And it didn't seem possible because how many people were seemingly following him at that time because of what? Because of the miracles he was performing. What did Jesus predict would happen? He's going to suffer many things. He's going to be rejected by the religious leaders. He's going to be killed and he's going to be raised from the dead on the third day. What does it mean that Jesus is the Messiah? Simply means what? It means that Jesus was going to have to pay a price for you and for me. What does it mean he's the Messiah? In this context, I'm going to have to pay a price for you. Then we keep reading. We keep reading in verses 23 through 27. This continues on. He just, he just talks about being killed, buried, resurrected. Verse 23, and he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. What's this all about? What do we see in these verses? What, why? Let's think about this. Why did Jesus go directly from speaking about his death and resurrection to talking about what is required for those who would call themselves followers of him? There's no segue. Why? What does it mean that Jesus is the Messiah? What does it mean that's a follower? Why does he go from one to the other with no segue? Because in these verses, Jesus makes it very clear. There's a connection between, between his death and what? There's a connection between his death and our discipleship. These verses explain clearly there's a connection between his death and our lifestyle. What does it mean that Jesus is the Messiah? If we're a follower of that Messiah, it means that we will have to pay a price for following him. He's going to pay a price for us. Friend, friend, if you're going to call yourself a follower, there's going to be a price. There's going to be a price that you're going to have to pay for him. What, 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 would, what would be that price? What's the price of surrendering one's life completely over to following Jesus Christ? I think it starts with number one, a new attitude. What does he say there? If anyone would come after me or follow me, let him deny himself. A new attitude. I don't deprive myself a list of things. I deny what? I deny myself. What does that mean? 
Jesus doesn't give a list of things that we're supposed to deny and then another list of things that we can keep and we can keep doing that we don't have to deny if we're going to be his followers. Why? Because the thing that we must deny if we're going to follow Jesus is not a thing at all, but what? Me, my will. What does that mean? Try to put it very succinctly because you could turn this into a book, really, couldn't you? I have an always, an often, and a sometimes. If we're going to be denying ourselves, there's going to be an always, there's going to be an often, and there's going to be a sometimes. If we're going to call ourselves followers of Jesus, true followers of Jesus, we're always going to allow Jesus to be the absolute master of every part of our lives. There's no part of my life that is untouched. There's no, there's no closet in my heart that Jesus does not have the keys to. There are two members in the boardroom of my heart, myself and God, and God gets the only vote. Does that sound like you? There's an always. There's an often. Often what? Often we're going to have to deny ourselves something good, something not sinful, for something better. We're going to have to not, sleep is good. We're going to have to deny ourselves some sleep to do our devotions. Rest is great. We're going to have to deny ourselves to be faithful to church. And that's a command from God in Hebrews. Personal dreams are wonderful unless they come up against God's plan for our lives. There's an always, there's an often, and then there's a sometimes. Denying ourselves sometimes means that we have to give up God-given abilities that we're really good at to do something that we don't think we're good at at all. I want to say that again. I think this is a point that's worth making in the church of Christ today. We sometimes think if God has given me this ability to do this, then that must be God's will for my life. Tell that to the doctor who surrenders all to go to Booga Booga land and start a clinic in a little tiny village. If we're going to deny ourselves and follow Christ, if we're going to be following Christ, there's going to be sometimes, I'm going to say it again, where we give up God-given abilities that we're really good at to do something that we don't think we're good at. So that's... That's being a missionary in Asia, where there's no way I'll ever speak Thai like a Thai person. It's impossible. It won't happen. The truth is, if we want to see a list of things that we can keep and a list of things that we have to give up, friends, we're just probably not all that serious about following Christ. So let's redefine what it means to be a follower. There's going to be a new attitude. There's also going to be a new commitment. Where do we see that? Let him deny himself and what? Take up his cross daily. If we are going to be Jesus' disciples, we must accept the consequences that come with living for Christ today and then what? And then get up and do it again tomorrow. What is daily? I do it today and then I wake up tomorrow and I do it again. For us today, this symbol 
of taking up the cross might be a bit obscure. You think it was obscure in Jesus' day? You think that, the, that as the disciples, these disciples, these followers of Jesus, as they're hearing Jesus say, take up your cross and follow me, there was any confusion? They're like, hmm, that's an interesting metaphor. They knew exactly what he was talking about. What was the symbol of the cross in Jesus' day? When he says, take up your cross and follow me, what was the symbolism? It was a symbol of humiliation. Before the criminal was executed, he was forced to carry his own cross on the street through the town to the place where he would be crucified. The reason the Romans forced the prisoner to carry his cross through the town was to show everyone that the prisoner had completely submitted to Roman authority. It was a symbol of suffering. Before the criminal was crucified, he was stripped naked and beaten and then forced to carry that cross on which he was to be crucified. Kyle Eidelman in his old book, Fan Not a Follower, right, said this, there is no comfortable way to carry a cross. I don't care how you position it. And he ain't lying. It was a symbol of death. For those who were forced to carry that cross, it wasn't just a warning. Do it again next time and we're going to get you. No. For those who were forced to carry that cross, their fate was determined. The outcome was certain. They were going to what? Die. So when Jesus says this, I wonder what the, those followers those disciples are thinking at this very moment. 2,000 years later, we say, oh, it's a metaphor. Those guys, I have to think, they're thinking, it's not all metaphorical, pal. And then Jesus used the word daily. So here Jesus is making it clear. He's not talking about, he's not referring to physical death. He's referring to what? I die to me every day. And I accept, I think this deny yourself is the inward. It's almost, these are virtually the same thing, but there's an inward and there's an outward. Denying myself, I deny that. That's the inward part that I deal with. And then there's the outward part, the taking up the cross. Where I accept the consequences of following Christ today, just today. And then tomorrow I'm going to get up and I'm going to accept the consequences of following Christ tomorrow. That's commitment. It's a new commitment. I think it also refers to a new lifestyle. Because he says what? Let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and what? Tell me. Follow me. It's interesting. He said, he's basically saying, if we cut out the middle part there, if anyone would follow me, follow me. What's he saying? I look at some of the faces. I'm going to say, it's as if he's saying, if anyone would follow me, follow me. What's Jesus saying? I think he's saying this. If we're going to call ourselves followers of Jesus, we must get involved in fishing. If you're going to call yourself a disciple, a follower of Christ, we've got to get in the business some way, somehow, of fishing. 
There are potentially lots of things that we could be including in this definition of what it means to be a follower of Christ. But friends, it's really tough to say that we're following Christ if we're not involved in some kind of fishing. There wasn't a New Testament to do daily devotions in Jesus's day. In that moment, when he says, if you're gonna follow me, follow me, what does he mean? Well, when he called his, remember when he was calling his disciples, he says what? Follow me and I will what? I'll make you fishers of men. One pastor said this to me in, past, in passing one furlough, many furloughs ago, and it stuck with me. I don't want, I'd never heard it before, but it just like a knife in my heart. And it was simply this, and this isn't even longer. He just said, if you ain't fishing, pal, you ain't following and he's right. We, I think, we try to find very comfortable ways to following Jesus. We try to find ways that we can say we're involved in following friends if we're not involved in fishing. Are we really following? If this is what it means to be a disciple... I'm wondering myself, based on the next verses, verses 24 and following, if this is what it means to be a disciple, you suppose the disciples listening to this are thinking, hair blowing back, what in the world? If this is what it means to be a disciple, why would anyone pay such a price? Here's the price. Jesus just lays it out here. You want to follow? You want to call yourself followers? Here's the cost. Here's what you're going to have to pay. Why would anyone pay such a high price? Why not just believe in Jesus just to be saved and then go on with life, the life that you really want to live? We can do that. Salvation's by faith alone. We can do it. Why not just do that? Well, let me ask maybe another question or another couple questions. I think your honest answer to these questions really strikes at the very heart of what we really, truly, truly believe about God himself. And this is a theme that has been running throughout this week. How good is God? You really believe that? Here's another one. How good is God's plan for my life? You believe that? Is there any way that you could ever come up with a better plan for your life than God, the one who created you? So again, why would anyone pay such a high price? I think because there's a second price, there's a second cost to discipleship that are mentioned in these very verses. Do you see that second cost? We see the first cost in verse 23. There's another price to pay. I think it's the price that is paid for those Christians who do not follow Christ. Let's read those again. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory. There are three words in here that I think bring out the meaning of Jesus' words, of what it means to be a follower, and the second price we're going to pay if we don't choose the first price. 
Why would anyone pay such a high price to follow Jesus? I think verse 20, those three, those three words I think are life, himself, and ashamed. I think it's simply this. If I do not follow Christ, I will sacrifice the life he planned out for me from the beginning. Friends, we have a price staring us in the face. It's not all that difficult to understand. And then Jesus says, for whoever would lose his life for my, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Friend, again, this is, a, this is a chapter about discipleship, not sonship. We're not turning this into a works-based salvation where if I don't do this every day, somehow I'm not secure. Jesus is talking to disciples. And if I do not follow Christ, I will sacrifice the life he planned out for me. Or put it in the negative way, you cannot live the life that God has planned out for you if you are not daily surrendering to him. You can't. And you can't make up one better. You can't raise enough money to put in that plate by way of tithe to somehow balance out the life that God planned for you to live. That's the first one. Secondly, in verse 25, for what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself. What's he talking about there? I think it's this. Even if I become, I'm going to use a little modern terminology, even if I become the goat, but do not follow God, I will not be the person he wanted me to be. What's the goat? Even if I become the greatest of all time, that's what Jesus is saying here. Even if you were to gain the whole world, even if you have the ability to be Michael Jordan himself, even if you have to be the ability to be the next Tiger Woods, but that's not the life and the person that God has called you to be. It would be a waste. You would lose the person that Christ planned out for you to be. That's what he's saying. If you gained the whole world, if you, got the, if you were the best. And these days, when we see Christians become the best, oh, look at that. Oh, it's so awesome that a Christian is the best. I hope he's living the life and he's the person that God wants him to be. Because if he sacrificed anything else, he's not following Christ. That's what Jesus is saying. Great, go be the best. Make sure that's the person that God wants you to be. We get the, we, we're the best ever at whatever it might be. Basketball, football, business, sales, Amway. What does it profit if that's not, if you lose yourself, the person God has planned for you to be? One pastor said it this way The greatest decision in one's life is between heaven and hell. Once a person has trusted Christ as Savior, the next great decision is between heaven and earth. And I think he's right. There's a third point there. Why would we pay such a price if it's going to be steep, if it's going to be expensive? 
I think it's simply found in verse 26. And the next word is ashamed. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory. The Bible never talks about, in the, Christ, in the return of Christ, the Bible doesn't talk about Jesus himself being ashamed of the unsaved. He's coming to judge the unsaved. But it talks about being ashamed of whom? Of those who are his children. Jesus reminds his disciples, there is coming a day. It may not matter now, disciples. I know you're thinking about the cost, what it's going to take, what you're going to have to pay for following the me the way I said to follow me. But there's coming a day when literally the only thing that will matter is my presence before Christ, the one who gave his life so I could have it. There won't be anything else that matters. When he comes in his glory, I think the Bible backs that up very well. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, we know very well. For by grace you saved through faith that not of yourselves is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Remember verse 10. For we are his workmanship, his poem, created unto, in, in Christ Jesus to do good works, which what? Which God has beforehand ordained that we should walk in them. God has already planned out works for us to do beforehand. We just go out and be faithful. Why? So that 1 Corinthians 3.15 doesn't ring true or isn't shown to be true in our own lives where our house goes through that fire and the Bible says he himself will, be, he himself will suffer loss yet he himself will be saved yet so, so as through or by fire. And it's simply this, if I do not follow Christ, I will experience there will be a moment that moment when Christ returns or we meet him, where there will be a moment of shame and regret and loss of reward because we did not and we would not pay that first price. Friends, there are really two costs to discipleship. There are two prices paid for being a disciple of Christ. The reality is, the reality is if we don't pay the first one, we will pay the second one. There's no way around it. Jesus makes that clear. This isn't Nate's words. This is Jesus' own words. So my question is, do the words of Jesus describe your life as a follower of Christ? Or might we be guilty of redefining what it means to be a follower of Christ into something that's a little more tame, that's a little more inclusive, so everyone can be a follower of Christ, and there's no judgment whatsoever, because we're not biologists. Parents, parents, is this the kind of discipleship that you're teaching your kids? Kids, here's what it means to be a follower of Christ. You're going to need to learn while you're young. You need to deny yourself. You need to take up your cross. You need to be willing to accept the consequences that come from following Christ today and get up tomorrow and do it again. And then follow. Get involved some way in fishing, kids. Is that what we're teaching our kids? 
if our kids wanted to follow, to go all in, to throw all the cards in, to put all the chips in, if they wanted to go all in for Christ, would they know from you how to do it? If our kids wanted to go all in for Christ, would they have to go over or around or through you simply to follow the one who said, follow me? Or have we become accustomed to our own definition of following and then put that on our kids as well? I've lived in Thailand now for 20 years and I come back about every four years. It doesn't feel like we're getting better. There are two costs to following Christ. There are two. If we're not willing to pay the first, we will pay the second. Do you really want to ride for the brand? God, work in hearts even now. I pray that my humble words would make a difference because they're not my words at all. They're the direct words of Jesus Christ. Work, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.